I take this? Absolutely. I didn't mean for you to kill me with it. I just wanted to. <laughs> oh, okay. That makes me feel better. Okay. Got it. We're glad that you're here this morning. As you know, we have a lot of people on the road. Let's be praying just for their safety. A lot of them are driving long distance in the rain. Let's pray. Oh, and this time, if any of the kids want to go out, thank you. We need to remind them. At some point along this thing, I will remember to say, let the children go out. You see, I just love children so much, I want them to be with us all the time. That's not really fun. Though I do love children. I've got to be careful. I've got to be very careful with that. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you. Even that song we just sang, that there is salvation in you. We recognize because of anything we have done or anything we've said or ever done, it's only because of your mercy and your grace that you saw us in our sin and our stupidity and our filth, and yet you loved us where we were. And you gave us new life. You gave us hope. You gave us a reason for living. And you gave us a future that's beyond our comprehension, but not our reality. We'll experience it at some point. So we're so thankful, Father, for who you are, what you've done. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you'd be willing to go to a Roman cross to die for our redemption. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for your ongoing work in the life of every believer and in the life of our church. And Father, we pray for all the churches in our area here that are preaching the gospel and pray that you would be working and strengthening them, encourage their pastor. We pray, Father, if any people would come to know you as Savior and Lord. So as we come to this passage this morning in our series of dealing with the demonic and the issues like that, we pray that you'd give us ears to be able to hear well what you want us to hear and what you want us to know. So be with us, we pray now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid playing in the play, I used to enjoy what I guess people call it, we used to call it teeter-totter or a seesaw. Many of you remember how fun that was as a kid. I used to enjoy that. We used to get on there and play, and it'd be fun. And, you know, I like that going up and down part. But particularly, I think guys did this. You know, you'd get on there, and then you'd have, like, you think you'd kind of try to move up and back and see if you could get it there. And then there was always some knucklehead that just at some point when you're up there, they jump off. Junk! And you hit the ground. I don't know if this is true, but somebody told me that most playgrounds anymore in our area are no longer doing teeter-tots, well, whatever you want to call it, okay? You can call it seesaw, just because there's too many injuries. Somehow the lawyers got in there. I better be careful what I say. But anyways, I'm told that that doesn't happen very much anymore. You can't have that kind of deal. But that idea of a teeter-totter, you know, a seesaw, that idea of trying to find that which is level is certainly a good illustration of what we need to be as Christians when we're dealing with this issue about the fact that we do have a powerful person, maybe person, not the best word, but a powerful entity named Satan who hates God, hates you, and would destroy us if he could. And find, for us to be able to find that kind of balance is very, very important. Many of you years ago maybe read a book by Dr. Charles Ryrie, in which he had a great name in the book. It was called Balancing the Christian Life. 
And it's not just a good book, it was a great title because so many things in our life, and particularly our life in terms of our walking with the Lord, is trying to find that balance. And that's particularly true in the series that we're working on right now when we're dealing with things that deal with the demonic, with Satan and all his minions. Because it's easy for people in this kind of area, when this kind of uh, issue that we're dealing with, to go off one way or the other. For example, you have people that, you know, they, they take the, uh, I, I'll think about this tomorrow kind of approach. I, I don't want to think about it. You know, that gives me the heebie-jeebies, creepy stuff thinking about it. I'm just going to pretend it isn't really real. Well, that works for a little while until maybe you find out you're dealing with an actual demonic stuff. And there's other people who go the opposite direction, and they become almost obsessed by it. And they start being nervous that there's things around them, demons all around them. They can become obsessed going the other way. For example, you get out in the morning. This person, let's say, and they go to start. It won't start. The battery, click, click, click. It's not doing anything. And the question is, well, you know, I think a demon, you know, got my battery. Now, could that happen? I'd have to say, yes, that's possible. But the very fact that you left the dome light on all night makes me think it's probably not a demon. It's more likely you forgot to shut the door and turn the dome light off, okay? So you see what we're talking about, trying to find that balance. As Christians, it's real easy for us to get off on one way or the other. And I know you've heard this illustration 10 times, but Martin Luther used the one about the drunk getting on the donkey. The drunk would climb up onto the donkey and then he'd fall over the other side. Then he'd get up and he'd fall over the other side. And he said, why can't we as Christians find that middle? And that's, of course, what we're trying to do today. Trying to get into the position of recognizing there is a reality of demonic that is opposed to all that's related to God and to the believer. On the other hand, we have to be very careful that we don't assume that everything that happens is bad or negative or we don't like is somehow because of demonic activity. Finding that balance is huge. So this morning, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at what we call the three major threats against us. It's called the world, the flesh, and the devil. And what I'd like you to do is turn to a very popular, very well-known book in the Bible near the end called the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. Many of you know a lot about Ephesians. Most Dallas Seminary graduates have done work through this thing and taught it, and I know I have multiple times. But it's a terrific book. You hate to be in any position saying this is a great book, like what, compared to what, better than Colossians? You, know, you don't want to say that, but it's, it's a good book. It's a great book. And many of you are very familiar with it, and you may know the context. The context is, as far as we understand, the Apostle Paul is in prison. I'm assuming this is his Roman imprisonment, maybe one or two Roman imprisonments. We're not sure. But he's there, and he's writing a letter to the church in Ephesus. And this chapter, this book in Ephesians, is only six chapters long. And yet it is a book that has had huge impact on really on the Christian church over many, many years. There's so many issues that Paul packs into just six chapters. The book of Ephesians is often thought to be sort of like the quintessential Paul, dealing with big issues, tough issues, and, but he does such a terrific thing in doing that. The uh, reformer John, uh, John Calvin, one of the great Christian reformers, uh, he just loved the book of th this book uh, that we're talking about in Ephesians. 
In fact, when he was there in Ephesians, I mean, excuse me, when he was there in Geneva, he did a series on the book of Ephesians. He preached 48 straight messages from the six chapters of Ephesians. Now, I'm not positive, but I'm guessing that if I did 48 chapters, I mean 48 messages on the six chapters, I'd have Larry and John saying, we're going to have a little deacons meeting. We're going to talk to you about this. It's time to move on after 48 chapters of the book of Ephesians. John, of course, Calvin, was smart enough to be able to pull that off, and people thought it was a great series. I would not attempt it, uh, knowing myself. But the point is, this is a great book, and it deals with so many things, but particularly right here at the very beginning, we're turning to Ephesians chapter 1, what we find out is doing this beautiful thing. It starts off with this thing about praising the God and the Father for what he's done. talks about the redemption in verse 7 that we have through Christ. All these important things, the inheritance we have. Glenn has already read some of this for us. And then he goes on and he talks about these different things that are going on. But what we want to do is move on down to chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. Because what Paul wants to do is say, okay, I've told you all these wonderful things that you have in Christ, but let's go back and remember what it was like before you were a believer. That's a good thing to do once in a while, to think about what Christ has done for us and what we used to be. So I'm picking up in chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. That's one of those three key words we're looking at. On the ways of this world, according to the ruler, as we'll see in the passage, it's referring to Satan, who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working on the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our, in our flesh, or I'm reading the Holman Christian that says the fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature under wrath as the others were. Okay, so he's making, think how things were, were bad. And there you notice, by the way, there's where those three words come up, the world, the flesh, and he talks about Satan. Okay, And so what we have here in these three words that have become, really become very common in Christian theology and teaching, saying in that struggle that we have, here's the big three, the, sometimes called the unholy or the pagan trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now look at me, if you would, again, in chapter 2, verse 1, because it is important here. He starts off, he talks about, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, which you previously walked, according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler. Okay? So in that thing, he talks about the world. The first of the three, he deals with the world. We're going to see in a few minutes that John, not in John dealing with like the Gospel of John, but in his letters that he wrote later on, but he puts a big emphasis on dealing with the world and the struggle that we have. Because what we see in this passage here is how important it is to recognize that we are hugely impacted by this world, whether we recognize it or not. And most of the time, we're probably not aware of it. But yet, many of us want to, in some ways, so we can fit in with our culture, that we can fit in with people. We Maybe we don't even realize how much we want to fit in with them, to be part of the right group, the cool group. Sometimes we laugh about teenagers who, you know, oh, I just got to get the sneakers that Shaq does, and so I'm willing to pay $200 for sneakers just so I could be cool and be with the cool kids. 
Now, it's easy for us to laugh at them and think, isn't that crazy? But if you think about it, don't we as adults often do that? Are we not impacted by the world where, yeah, I need to be that. I need to be like this. And this is particularly hard for young people, too, who are trying to find their way, trying to find a where do I fit. And they deal with this whole issue about what are we doing. And so it is a very difficult thing. You know, and you think about it, we are just bombarded every day with messages that are telling us this is what's good, this is what makes you cool, this is what you ought to have, this is what you need to do. I was on the internet yesterday looking at what does, how much does the, our country spend on advertising. Advertising is only a small part of what our world is that we talk about. But it was interesting, they had to listen years after years. The latest ones, of course, were 2012. In 2012, they said the amount of money that was spent for advertising was $144 billion. Not $144 million, $144 billion was spent on advertising. Now you think, why who in their you know, crazy person would spend that much money in advertising? They spend it because they know they're gonna make a whole lot more by doing that. And a lot of times, we're not even aware that we are unconsciously absorbing what we think is what the world would want us to be like. And so what we have in this scripture is making us very clear, be very careful. This world that we live in, he said, we don't realize how it is. You know, we often use the illustration of the frog and the kettle kind of deal. It doesn't, you know, if Satan came to the door and said, hi, I'm Satan, I'd like to do some destruction, would that be okay for you? I mean, we can't, what do you think you'd say? I mean, no, get out of here. But when we do it just a little by little in our culture, we start finding out we are want to be part of this. We want to be thought as cool. We want to be part as in the cool gang. And so all this happens, and so we do this. It impacts our philosophy, our mores, our thoughts, our beliefs, our sexuality, our faith is impacted by it. And yet they're told in the scriptures we're not to be in the world, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. And that's a real struggle. It's a real struggle for us. We have so much struggle with trying to say, okay, how am I to be distinct from this culture in which God has placed me? And how do I do that? So turn if you would. You might want to keep your finger or put a mark on Ephesians. But turn over to the right to the book we talked about in just a minute, to 1 John. Because when we're talking about the world, what we have is in 1 John, John gives us a very clear statement of describing what he thinks this world is life and why it's dangerous. Remember, we're talking about the world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay, he's dealing with the word. And so he, I'm going to read 1 John chapter 2. I'm picking up in verse 12. It's a beautiful passage. But it goes right into a warning in verse 15. And so I'm reading in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus' name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you've come to know the one who's from the beginning. I'm writing unto you, young men, because you've had victory over the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you've come to know the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you've come to know the one who is from the beginning. And I've written to you, young men, because you're strong. God's word remains in you, and you have victory over the evil one. But then comes the warning in verse 15. Do not love the world or anything that belongs to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. That is a strong statement. That is a scary statement. 
If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of one's life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The, world, the, word, the word that is used here, the world, is just a very common Greek word, cosmos. And it's used in many ways. It can be used in a very positive sense. For God so loved the cosmos, the world, that he gave his only son. But it can be used in a negative. It's the world in rebellion against God. And that's exactly, of course, what he's doing here. The world is opposed. The world apart from Christ is opposed to, the, to Christ, opposed to the church. And his point is, he said, listen, how do you, why do you want to be so much a part of this world when it's opposed to God? And are you even aware of the ways in which you are impacted by this culture? And so he says in verse 16, do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. And it's interesting, he goes on and talks about what are these things that we deal with? What are these issues that we have? And it's interesting, he talks about these things that we have, and he talks about being away from the world. Many of you know Eugene Peterson. He did the message, and um, it's interesting. He's, he, he paraphrases chapter 2, verse 2, where it talks about the, the word. And he says this, when he talks about the word, he says, uh, here's how he describes it. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, to tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief, and then, exalted, and then you exhaled disobedience. Now, that is a far cry from the Greek, let me tell you what. But it really catches the point. His point is, why would you let the world set the standard for what you think is right, how life is to be lived? And he's saying you can't live that way. And so what happens here is we find that John, in first, we're back in 1 John, he says, all right, here's three things we talk about the flesh. First of all, lust of the flesh. Usually the first thing that comes up is sex. It's not exactly what he's talking about here. When we're talking about the flesh, again, that word can be used in many different ways, positive or negative. Here is the negative. But again, the flesh is that part of us, in that sense, that unredeemed part of us that's, ever been, that's been there ever since Adam and Eve, in every person. It's that part that wants to say, I want it my way. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. No one's going to tell me what to do. It is that, that's often referred to that cindering core. It's that little flame deep inside of you that's saying, they're, they're after you. You shouldn't do this. Why do you do this? Why do you care what they do? And you start, yeah, that's right, that's right. It's that thing within us that keeps growing. And, and there's where you feel where Satan is at work. Whew, you're right. They really cheated you, didn't they? Whew, you really ought to get back to them, don't you think? And what he's doing is making things worse and worse. So when he's talking about the fact that we have this unquenchable thirst, that we have to have what we want. Now, again, it goes back to this issue. In what way, or is there any way in which Satan is involved in that kind of things that we go through and sometimes a daily, weekly basis where we're not even aware of it? Wayne Grudem, many of you know him or read about him. Wayne Grudem is um, he's the one who wrote the systematic theology that is probably the most popular used one in America today among evangelicals. It's called Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. And he has an interesting quote I wanted to read to you. He's dealing with this issue of how much of the things that go wrong is it from us and how much is it from the devil? See, we like it. We say, oh, the devil made me do it. Really? Or is that you decided you were going to do it and now you're going to blame the devil? Now listen to what he says. 
he talks about all of these different things, but he, Satan's called the evil one. He talks about the different phrases. He's the ruler of this world. He said, listen to this. When we combine all these statements and see that Satan is thought of as the originator of lies, murder, deception, false teaching, and sin generally, then it seems reasonably to conclude that the New Testament wants us to understand that there is some degree of demonic influence in nearly all wrongdoing and sin that occurs today. Now listen to this next sentence because it's an important one. Not all sin is caused by Satan and demons. I can be very clear of that. Not all sin is caused by Satan and demons. We give demons and devil too much credit when actually it's coming directly from our heart. And so what he's saying here, not all sin is caused by Satan or demons, nor is the major influence or cause of sin demonic activity. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just blame it on a demon? The demon made me do it once again. Really? Actually, it was just you who did it. And so he says here, not, but demon, demonic activity is probably a factor in almost all sin and almost all destructive activity that opposes the work of God in the world today. In other words, could there be a demonic thing where you have decided you're going to do this and it's wrong and he's encouraging you, strengthening you in it? But don't blame, the, don't blame Satan for it all the time when it actually is coming directly from your own heart. And so here we're going back to this idea of how important it is to deal with finding that level. On the one hand, we want to say, we want to go too far here. Oh, I said Satan has nothing to do with this. Yeah, it could have a lot to do with it. But the origination of it came right out of our heart. And he goes, yeah, right, you should do that. Right, don't you think so? And things get worse. You can go the other direction where you don't even think it could happen. And so we're trying to find that. So notice what he said. First of all, the lust of the flesh, that core within us. The second thing that he talks about here. And this is the one that's a hard one for particularly the young men that we have that are believers. The second example he gives is lust of the eyes. And this is one we do think of sexuality. We have a generation of young men that are growing up in a sexual cesspool. It's like something that our culture has never experienced. And to be honest with you, I mean, I've been to conferences talking with people, and these guys are talking about the fact that uh, you know, we're getting married to this person and this person, and they realize it's, that, that the vast majority of the young men that their daughters are going to be marrying are guys that have had significant amount of pornography. And the question is, how is that going to impact their life, their sexual life together as husband and wife? And it's pretty, it's just, it's, it's tragic. You know, it's interesting. You may have seen this. There was an article uh, about maybe two months ago that said the pornography business, most of the out of California, is in deep trouble. They are losing money. Some of the places have closed up. Now, we ought to be saying, thank you, Jesus. Glad to know that. That's terrific. But here's the bad side of it. Why are they closing up? Because they're finding out they can't sell it anymore because it's all free. You can get it on your handheld. You can get it on your computer. And there's so much porn out there, and people are copying it and copying it and sending it to friends, and they're doing it. The people are thinking, why bother paying for it anymore when you can get it for free? So in the one sense, we can say, well, isn't that great? Those pornographers are losing. Yeah, but they're only losing because it is so indicative all through of our culture and our society. And when we talk about praying for people, we ought to particularly be praying for our young people. I realize it could be women too, but it's particularly for guys. And this whole thing of how do you live 
a, a life that is given to God in the midst of a cesspool. And for us, this is going to be an important thing for us dealing with our young people. First one, lust of the flesh. Second one, he talks about lust of the eyes. The third one is a little bit more unusual. He uses the word, the pride of life. Now, it could be a lot of us here saying, well, the first one, about pride of flesh, that's not a huge issue with me. The one about lust of the eyes, that hasn't been an issue maybe for a long time. I don't think that's my issue. But the last one, number three, what John talks about, that could be one for any of us. It's the pride of life. It's being with the right people, living in the right part of the city, being with the people who have influence, letting people know that you're a cut above they are. And that one, this one, the pride of life, is often one of the most difficult ones to see in ourselves. It's very easy for us to say, well, that's just the way I am. And aren't I better than these you know, poor people who are doing this? It's a shame, isn't it? And we go on. And John's saying, do you realize what that is? Do you realize how Satan uses this, trumps you up, make you think you're really somebody? You're really somebody important, aren't you? It's too bad they don't realize just how talented you really are. And Satan's going, come on, man, keep on thinking that one. We're going to get lifted you up to right the point where I kick the slots out, and you're going to be hitting your face on the ground. And John is saying, here's some of the ways where Satan is not the one who starts it, but he's the one that helps you right along the way. And so we talk about the pride of life. We talk about the lifestyle. But when we look on real quickly, when he talks about this, when he talk, goes, when, let's go back to, in fact, now let's go back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 2, excuse me, back in Ephesians chapter 2, we talk about the way that he works. Ephesians chapter 2, we have that phrase that we looked at on the first John here. Let me go back to it. <coughs> Excuse me. As we go back to Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. Then he talks about the fact who exercises authority. The, the scripture re I'm reading says, over the lower heavens. If you have the NIV, it might say the ruler of the kingdom of the air. It's a hard phrase. Um, you have the Greeks at that time, the Greek language is what was, they were be using. They had the idea there was the earth, then there was like the moon, and that air between them was like the air they talked about, the lower air, which often had the demons or the bad creatures, and the north and the upper part was like the clearer kind of air. And so it's a strange phrase, but it talks about the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens. Again, he's talking about this kingdom, and he's talking about Satan. He's saying that this is the one who has tremendous power. In fact, one of the passages that is very almost disturbing is, in, if you look and you have to turn, I'll read it for you, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, we read these words. Chapter 4, verse 4, it says this. But if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the mind of the unbelieving so they cannot see. It doesn't say they won't see, but they can't even see. That's the power that Satan has to even keep them from seeing. And that's amazing that he talks about, God, he talks about Satan in such a way. When he says, in their case, the God of this age. Now, if you notice in your Bible, like mine, it probably has God with small g. 
it shouldn't, it probably ought to. Not like that it has it in the Greek text, but the point is, you know, we almost call it a God, but it's not anything compared to the God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we know and that we worship. But it is reminding us again that we have got an enemy that is opposed to us. And it's so clear that when you look at these passages saying, here are three ways, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and any combination, they can work together to hurt you. Now, if you think about it, sometimes you might remember, by the way, that there's a passage in chapter 4 of um, Ecclesiastes. It talks about how a three-cord rope, when twined together, is so much more powerful. That's a good illustration of the world, the flesh, the devil. When you have all three of those working together, that's an incredible power opposed to God and God's people. And that's the bad news. The good news is in this very next passage that we're at. In fact, let me just read you a couple passages, just single verses from the book of Ephesians. Notice the theme word that comes in all of this. We've heard all this bad news. Now he's come to the good news. So in Ephesians, let's get back to Ephesians. Back in Ephesians, what we see here in chapter 1, listen to these different words. I'm reading Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. You can listen along. He said this. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. Now notice, I pray that the perception of your mind be enlightened, so you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the glorious riches of inheritance among the saints? And then verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe? Okay, the point is, we've heard a lot of the bad news, but the good news is, Satan's power is nothing compared to what the Lord has and that he can give to his people in their time of need. You jump down, for example, to chapter 3, verse 16. It's in that famous passage section in 3.16. In 3.16, it says this, um, as soon as I can find it. In three, chapter 3, verse 16 he talks about that, I pray that he may grant you according to those riches to glory to be strengthened with power in the inner man through his spirit. Okay, over to 3, down to verse 20. Now to him who's able to do above and beyond in all what we ask or think according to the power that works in us. I'm flipping over to chapter 6, verse 10. You get the big idea when he says this in verse 10. Finally be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. His point is, I've told you all the evil stuff, all the things that can happen, the way Satan is powerful. He even calls him the God of this age. But he says, but look at this. Look at the power that I've given my people who when they come to the Lord in faith, when they come to him realizing that God can give us the power we need to say no to that which is evil, to say no to that which would be destructive. And so he says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, when he goes on in that passage, and he talks about this thing. Be strengthened in the Lord and his vast strength. Put on, and this is where we come on, put your armor on. And that's the famous, he uses this long metaphor of military describing it. And so he says in this thing, this is why you must take up the full armor of God. So you may be able to resist the evil one in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. 
stand there for, and then he goes this metaphor of describing the different things. You have the helmet, you've got the belt, you've got the, the, the things that you need. And it's fascinating. Of course, people have written entire books on this little section of talking about putting your armor on. But the point of this is here, he's using a military metaphor to let you know, saying, do you recognize that as a Christian, you are in a battle? You're not in a battle against people, but you are in a battle. If you notice the things that it talks about here, you have a belt around, you have a belt around, excuse me, with the truth like a belt, righteousness like armor on your chest, your feet sandaled with readiness, in every situation, take the shield of faith. You'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is God's word. It's interesting. It's not out there in battle, but it is standing firm against Satan. It's not saying, no, go take that hill. The Lord said, I'll take the hill, but you stand firm in what I've given you. And here's the two things to take, walk away with. What we've seen in these passages is, is describe the fact that we have a terrible, terrible enemy who hates us. That's a given. We don't want to get to the point of saying every bad thing that ever happens is because of Satan. It's not the reality. But if we go to the other thing and just think, oh, I'm sure it's just them, it's not, that's, a, that's, that's not true. Well, we have to find that balance. And what it's telling us here is, yeah, you've got a terrible enemy who wants to destroy you. But the reality of the power of God is so much infinitely greater than anything you could ever imagine. We don't have to live our life in fear. We don't have to do that. Jesus, and when he sent his disciples, they just had to speak a word. Get out of here. Be gone. And they were gone. And so for us, we recognize, okay, there's bad news, but the good news is so great. And we know how the story ends. When you read, for example, Revelation chapter 20, that tells us how Satan and his mob, they're gone. Story's over. In fact, I'll close with this statement. Thomas Watson, one of the famous Christian Puritans, he said this, and with this we'll close. He said, soon the battle will be over. It'll not be long now before the day will come when Satan will no longer trouble us. There'll be no more domination temptation, accusation, or confrontation. Our warfare will be over, and our commander, Jesus Christ, will call us away from the battlefield to receive the victor's crown. Now, you say, well, victor's crown is a metaphor. Describe, well, I don't know whether it's a crown or whatever it is, but the point is, he's saying, as we stand in the power that Christ has given us, not in our own, we don't have the power, but in the power that Christ gives us through his spirit, that we can stand before the Lord, not just hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, but you're one who stood in the battlefield, stood in the gap, knowing that it's not about you, it's about the power of Christ in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that you help us to find that balance so we don't go off in strange directions that lead us away, but Father, that you call us to be able to recognize who we are in Christ, that we would fully understand the bad news, but we would, we would be so much exalting in the good news of what you've done for us. Don't allow us to live in fear. Allow us, we pray, by the strength of your spirit to know that we have a great Savior. And compared to Satan, Satan's nothing. 
and we don't have to live our life in fear. Be with us now. Help us as we continue. As we prepare ourselves to take the bread and the wine, the body and the blood, we would ask that you would be with us and help us, we pray.